0: My most loving Panams at Bhagwan's lotus feet, dear listeners. I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. As always, this is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, and I have this honor and privilege of sitting in the studio inaugurated by Swami in the very place that Swami came and sat, and to be able to talk to all of you live. It's a privilege that Swami has blessed all of us with week after week. Yes, we're coming to you from our studio in Prashanti Nilayam, and. For those of you who are regular listeners of this program, to whom I am ever grateful for, if not for you, I would not have this opportunity to go through this beautiful text. We go through the Bhagavad Gita in this series and we go through every verse, we don't leave out anything and we try to understand them. One, in the context of what Swami has told us, the most important and profound message that Swami has given. And secondly, as I always keep emphasizing, what is it that we can practically learn from this? And in the very, very first episode of the Gita series, I had mentioned that the Bhagavad Gita has got a name. It's called the Sadhana Smriti. Right? It is something which is meant to be practiced. It is not something which is just to be heard, just to be spoken about, just to be memorized. It is something that needs to be made a part of our everyday life. And that is what makes this very, very profound and people from different cultures pick up the Bhagavad Gita and find a lot of resonance with it because though the discourse is being delivered to a warrior who is about to fight, none of our situations is any less or any different from that given that we all are fighting our own battles every day. The last week we commenced the third chapter and we just made a beginning but before that of course we completed the brief summary that we had of the second chapter. In fact, Last week was the second part of the summary I spoke about the sthita prajna portion where uh, Arjuna asked this question of how does a sthita prajna or a man of constant wisdom carry himself or herself and that was the last part of the second chapter which summary which we did. Don't worry, I'm not going to do a summary of the summary and that was the beginning of last week's episode. Then we did the first three verses of the second chapter. Before we go to that, uh, I think a lot of people often ask me, which is a good resource to go and read when we are trying to learn the Bhagavad Gita shlokas or what do you refer to? A couple of them have asked me personally, I've given them a few links. One site if you probably want where you can go and learn the Bhagavad Gita shlokas there is no audio but the text is very clear with many translations there are a few commentaries also available and if you want the transliteration in other languages that is also available. It's a very beautiful site created by students and staff of IIT Kanpur. I think uh, there was a WhatsApp message which was doing the forward saying that there is this site called Gita Super Site created by IIT Kanpur. Yes, it is true. It has been created by the staff and faculty and uh, the students there. It's a very beautiful, simple, elegant website. I turned to that website for the Sanskrit versions of the shlokas and of course the translations, some of them I take from there. So those of you who were wondering what is a good resource for the Bhagavad Gita, that is one, there are plenty. This is just one of the versions that is available online which makes it easier for most of us who nowadays probably don't have access to books. So that's one thing I just wanted to say before we start today's uh, episode. So going back to the third chapter, the beginning of the third chapter. As I mentioned, the second chapter was a very very profound but not only profound, it was also precise in many ways. And that being the case, not much of what Krishna said was elaborated. Of course, we elaborated it going through episodes, about 25 episodes just for the second chapter. We went into details, but Arjuna just got it in the form of 72 verses. So, there was a lot of doubts that must have come up in Arjuna's mind and that's what leads him to ask a very, very critical question. He says, from all that you've explained, it is quite clear, Krishna, that the wisdom is greater than just performing actions. If that be the case, why are you urging me to do this dastardly act of killing people by participating in the war? Right. That's what he asks and in this question itself, a couple of things are very clear. One is, Arjuna is still stuck with the idea that he started off with. That, that he wants to give up the battlefield, he wants to go away from the battlefield and he wants to take up sanyasa, Right. So that thought is still predominant in his mind and uh, he's raising it again the other point is that he has concluded that the act of participating in the war is bad this might appear like you know why am i saying this isn't war always bad yes i don't deny that but of course we went through how this war in the mahabharat has come to be and how that justifies the fact that the pandavas who are otherwise peace loving are here to fight the battle that's the contextual story of the mahabharat but even otherwise the reason why I am saying that Arjuna is stuck with the idea that the war is bad is that is also an expression of his strong likes and dislikes, the term which we keep going back to, Raga and Dvesha. He is fixed upon his mind that participating in this war is bad and he is again and again raising the same point point. and when Krishna made it categorically clear that to be a sthita prajna is to go beyond Raga and Dvesha, that is a very important point That is one thing that uh, Arjuna is revealing here, that he has not given up his strong dislike for this act and his strong inclination to take up sannyasa. So Arjuna feels that whatever Krishna spoke in the second chapter suggests that jnana is superior and that karma will lead to delusion and eventually lead to ruin. And all of this seemed to support his initial plan of giving up the battle and taking up sannyasa. So Arjuna feels that, I mean, I agree with whatever you're saying, But every time in between, you seem to be saying that, so you go and fight in the battle. So you take up the Gandiva and go and fight. And in fact, there is one huge chunk in the second chapter where he spoke about the specific duty of Arjuna, where he says that even when we see it from the standpoint of your duty, this is something that you have to do. But of course, he has kind of left out that part completely in his argument, Arjuna. But nevertheless that is also a point which Krishna made which is causing all of this confusion so one hand Krishna is saying nothing like jnana, nothing like wisdom but on the other hand he says act, he says fight so that is what is leading Arjuna to ask this question that you are telling me this that wisdom is greater but you are also asking me to fight and uh, the second was Arjuna goes on to ask that I told you that I am confused and you have to give me clarification and you have to give me clarity But you are confusing me further here by saying that, naming both of these things in the same breath. So he says, you are seemingly confusing me and we spoke about how important it is the way Arjuna has put it. As seemingly confusing saying that, it is getting confused in my head but I am sure that there is clarity in your end and that is what Arjuna is seeking. So he says, I am confused and you are confusing me further. So you decide between the two what is right and you please tell me what is the right thing that I have to do. And he says, you tell me one thing, don't tell me these two and confuse me even further. In response to that, Krishna says in the third verse of the third chapter, he says, it is not like this is better or that one is better. Both of these are nishtas. That's the very beautiful word that he uses and we'll go back to that again even in today's episode. Krishna says there are two nishtas, which means there are two types of committed lifestyles. And... Both of these are leading to the same goal. He says, Jnana Yogena Sankhya Nam, Karma Yogena yoginam," Which means, there is the path of Jnana for those who have renounced everything and there is the path of Karma Yoga for all others who are still in the world performing their actions. So the very beautiful word there of course is the word Nishta. He doesn't say there are two paths but he says there are two committed lifestyles and both of which are equally valid and equally capable of taking one to the final goal. Because that is what Arjuna asks. He says, which of these two is going to lead me to Shreyas or which of these two is going to grant me liberation? And Krishna very, very clearly says these are two paths. It is not like one is better than the other or I would recommend one more than the other. Or we don't know, Krishna might recommend one more than the other as we will see as we go ahead. And there is a reason for that too. We'll of course discuss all of that when we get to that. But Krishna is clearly saying that these are two paths. It is not like this is better than that or somebody who takes up this is more superior. So that's where uh, we completed last week's episode which was the three verses of the third chapter. We'll go to the fourth verse of the third chapter as always. I have brother Sham who has beautifully rendered all of these verses. And again, this is another query which keeps coming to me. Where can we access all of these shlokas? To tell you the truth, we don't have all of these shlokas ready altogether. As we are going, Brother Sham is recording these and we are processing them and using them. So we have not recorded all the shlokas as yet. But definitely we will look at some way of making all of these available so that it can be used as resources. A lot of Balvikas teachers and SSC teachers have asked us how can we get these shlokas so we can use them for our study groups. We would be really glad if we can offer these to you and it could be of use. So we will find a way of doing that. But as of now, uh, we don't have that option. We will pray to Swami that that happens soon. For now, this is the fourth verse of the third chapter rendered by Brother Sham, one of our alumnus, one of our volunteers who helps us with a lot of Sanskrit chantings and Veda tutors too. So we we'll listen to that as always. After that, I'll give you a brief summary or a brief meaning and then we'll discuss about it. It's a very beautiful
1: and very profound verse. Siddhim Samadhi
0: A person does not attain freedom from action by abstaining from action nor does he attain fulfillment merely through renunciation. So that's the continuation of what Krishna said in the third verse of the third chapter where he said these are two nishtas, two pathways. Arjuna asked a very very important question. Tell me what is the path to liberation? And technically speaking, there is nothing that One can do as such to get liberation. Is there any activity we can do, any action that we can perform to get liberation? Actually, there is nothing like that. There is no action that you and I can do and be guaranteed that this action is going to give me liberation. There's a long reason for that. There's a long way. I don't remember if I've already mentioned this in one of the programs, but we'll not go into that. But this is what it is there is no action that can be performed that can take us to liberation. If you're hungry, the act of eating can satiate your hunger. If you're tired, the act of sleeping or you know, just resting for a while can negate that feeling of being tired. But there is no action that removes ignorance and grants wisdom as such. So if there is no action to achieve liberation, why do action at all? Right? That's the question that is propped up in Arjuna's mind. On top of it, doing actions actually binds, as Krishna explained, in the end of the second chapter at best it can give you a place in heaven it can probably give you a better birth but it does not necessarily in any way give you liberation and if not done properly it's going to lead you to more and more bondage and when krishna explained the state of sthita prajna he said that even a person who has controlled his senses and mind can indeed go astray but a sthita prajna conquers that rasa or taste for objects of the senses because he has had the vision of the highest which means that ultimate wisdom is the highest to have that wisdom to have that vision of who you really are that is the ultimate the fact is we will see even wisdom or even that knowledge itself does not give liberation it is some process that the knowledge starts off which gives us liberation so to say Even if knowledge does not give us liberation, action does not liberate us, what actually liberates the individual Jeevi or jivatma? Swami makes it very very clear in one of his discourses. He says, the anthakarnas and the ahankara has to be sublimated. And without that, there is no release, there is no attaining the goal. Which means, the anthakarnas, the mind and ahankara, this false identification of who I am, has to go and without that there is no deliverance. As Krishna had hinted in the second chapter nirmamo nirahankaraha sashantim adhigachati the ultimate peace is attained only after the concept of I and mine is given up So what is this ahankara? As we said it's the feeling that I am so and so and when one has that wisdom, when one attains that wisdom it is nothing but Literally sanitizing this mind of this idea that I am only so and so. So, what that means is knowledge is also a means. Knowledge is also a means by which this ahankara is sublimated and then you attain liberation. Just as much as actions is also only a means, action itself will not give you wisdom. But something happens when you perform actions in a certain way where you are entitled for wisdom. Similarly, Knowledge itself does not give you liberation, but knowledge leads to the sublimation of ankara, if you're able to follow my strain of thought. So, with this idea of I, when it goes away, when this idea of I am so and so, I am this goes away, doership vanishes. And when there is no doer, there is actually no action. So, this is the means to the ultimate, according to Vedanta. Now, what is Arjuna asking? Oh, so action binds and i have to go beyond action this is what krishna is saying he says fine i will stop doing actions right that is the simplistic conclusion that he has come to he's saying that action is going to bind action is not going to give me wisdom from all that uh, description that krishna gave so he's saying so then i'll stop doing actions but there is a difference between not acting and going beyond actions and krishna begins to explain that in this particular verse when he says Karmanam anarambhat By not performing actions, Purushaha Man Naishkarmyam na ashnute Does not reach the state of Naishkarmyam. The word Naishkarmyam means actionlessness. So by not performing actions, man does not reach the state of Naishkarmyam or actionlessness. Just by choosing not to act, one just cannot reach the state of actionlessness. This is a very, very important point that he is saying. Just by choosing not to act, you do not reach the state of actionlessness or you do not cease to do actions in the true sense. And then he goes on to say, cha and also, Sanyasana deva, merely through sannyasa, na siddhim samadhi gatchati. one does not get success. The word Siddhi of course means is to attain what you are seeking or attaining success. But here since we are talking about liberation, Siddhi means to attain the goal or to attain liberation. So merely through Sannyasa, Sannyasana Deva, merely through Sannyasa, one doesn't get the ultimate liberation. Why is that so? Because if you look at it, even Sannyasa is a choice that is being made by the ego, isn't it? I am choosing to lead a life of a family man, then I become a family man. When I choose to become a monk, then I am taking up sannyasa. Isn't it the same ahankara, the same I that is making both these choices, whether it is to be a householder or to be a sannyasi? And I generally give this example and those of you who heard me earlier on the other shows will know this, how this ahankara literally works. Pride is one of the obvious manifestations of this ego, right? And that is why the word Ahankara itself is pretty much used as a synonym for pride in many of the Indian languages. Say when I'm a businessman and I end up making a lot of money, I'll be so proud of my success and I'll say that I am a successful businessman, right? I am successful, I am rich. But say I give up everything and I become a monk. Now the same ego will assert itself by saying, I am a spiritual man. I am a sannyasi. I am detached, unlike these poor fellows who are still caught up in the world and all this uh, power struggle. You know, I am a sannyasi. I've given up all of this. We will see that the same ahankara finds a different expression even in the choice which appears like a more noble choice than being a worldly person, right? Because that is the very nature of pride itself. So whether I'm choosing to be a sannyasi or choosing to be a karma yogi, that choice itself gives me nothing because it is the same ego that is making both the choices. The only difference is that the conditioning of the mind over many lifetimes ends up propelling us to make that particular choice. That is why Krishna said in the previous verse, there are just two pathways depending on your interest. Meaning, both will lead to the same goal. Just choosing one does not give you anything. That is why he uses the word Nishta. It is not a pathway that if you land up there, you're going to reach the goal. It has to become a Nishta. It has to be, become a commitment, a committed lifestyle. right? If you read this part of the Bhagavad Gita, one thing which I came across and those of you who have read the other commentators will know, many of the commentators and bhashakaras who favor one path, either karma yoga or sannyasa or you know, later you will see even bhakti coming and uh, playing an important role. So most of these commentators who prefer one path over the other would often suggest that after you perfect karma yoga, then you will be led to sannyasa and then you will get jnana. Almost suggesting that this state of sannyasa is sort of higher or even a mandatory step in the spiritual path. That you perfect karma yoga and then you go to that higher class. So that is one of the things which the commentators often say that you know, don't worry, you perfect yourself in the worldly life as a karma yogi then when you have become perfect in that, you will take up sannyasa right? But if you look at what Krishna has been telling so far going by what Krishna has explained so far till this point I think it does not seem so it doesn't appear like we can come to that conclusion already because if you look at it, what is the goal of karma yoga itself? It is to give up doership, right? Later, when Krishna explains in detail about Karma Yoga, this is the point which is going to come back again and again. The goal of Karma Yoga itself is to give up doership. And once the doership is sublimated, you are already a sannyasi in that true sense. A sannyasi is one who is not bound by any particular karma, right? Say, I choose to take up sannyasa. It means I look at my parents and I say, You're not anymore my father, you're not anymore my mother. In other words, that the duties a son has towards his parents are being given up right and i'm taking this duty of pursuing knowledge instead of taking care of my family isn't that what happens in a true karma yogi? he or she does his or her duty but when the fruits of those actions are not sought that leads to doership being sublimated isn't it and this is something that Krishna hinted even in the Karma Yoga, where he said, Doership and enjoyership is connected, and intertwined. By giving up one, you're giving up the other too. And a Karma Yogi, as Krishna explained even in the second chapter, is somebody who is doing his actions not for the fruits of the actions, but having moksha in his mind or liberation as his goal, right? That was something that came across very, very clearly. So a Karma Yogi is also doing whatever he is doing, not because he wants the love of his parents. He wants the love of his neighbors, or he wants the recognition by, from his boss. But he is also doing it with the same idea that a sannyasi does. So, in this process, when doership is given up and enjoyership goes with it, the karmayogi already is in the state of a sannyasi. So, to say being a karmayogi is a lower section, you know, to say that it is a little lesser class than being a sannyasi. It does not appear to be completely true, at least from this point where whatever Krishna has said. So, though there is a possibility that, you know, if somebody has led life like a karma yogi, that very, very strong dispassion will occur in their mind, right? Because that's what has happened. You've never looked at the fruits or the benefits of your actions and you've been very perfect in the way you've been doing. Over a period of time, your mind will be having that dispassion, what we refer to as vairagya. That will become one of the attributes of the mind. And when that emotion is foremost in your mind, be it later part of your life or even in the next life, the way you will decide or you will be pulled towards renouncing everything and seeking only the ultimate. So in that sense, yes, a karma yogi might eventually be drawn towards a life of a sannyasi. But to attribute a hierarchy doesn't seem to be absolute. And another argument that I can give in favor of what I'm saying is, many times Swami would sit with us the students in especially in private audience when we had the opportunity, be it in thrice sessions or in the portico, Swami would often talk to us about many of the saints that are glorified in Indian culture. And Swami would say, you know, this person is born again here. And you know, Swami would sometimes talk about the future birth of some saints. Which suggests that even if you've taken sannyasa, probably if there is something that you you will learn or you will progress faster by becoming a, a householder or being a member in the society and performing a karma yoga it happens there's nothing like you know if you say that sannyasa is higher than karma yoga in that sense there should not be a coming back from there right in a sense there's just an argument that I'm placing so I'm not saying this authoritatively but I'm just saying that from what Krishna has said till this point I think it's a premature conclusion to come to saying that karma yoga is a little lower than sannyasa, and if you perfected karma yoga then you are led towards sanyasa yoga. And as Krishna says, the goal is to reach the state of actionlessness. It is not about giving up action itself. But that cannot be attained by merely saying that I will not act anymore. And that is the most important point that Krishna said in this verse. Why is Krishna saying this categorically? That by not acting, you go to the state of actionlessness or naish He's going to explain that in the subsequent verses. We will go to the next verse. We'll listen to that. I'll give you a short meaning after that, and then we'll discuss in detail.
1: Nahikas <laughs> Chitkshanamapi Jatotishthatya Karma Kriti Karyatehya Hyabasha Karma Sarva Prakriti Jairgunai
0: because no one ever remains even for a moment without doing work. For all are made to work under the compulsion of the gunas born of nature. So Krishna had said that one by giving up action one does not transcend worship, and it is not possible to give up actions too. You can only choose to do something else. I am doing this. I can choose to stop doing this and start doing something else. Now I'm speaking to all of you and I can choose to stop speaking but then I'll have to do something else. Maybe I'll have to write something, I'll have to read something or I'll go and sit and do some website updates or whatever is that or maybe I'll just go home and probably I'll read a book or I'll watch TV. So if I'm doing none of the above, all of this I don't do, then I'll be simply sitting or I'll be sleeping. Even that is an action sleeping or sitting or simply walking around, isn't all of that also considered as karma. So there is absolutely no escape from doing action at all. You can only choose to stop doing what you are doing and start doing something else. And that is what Krishna says in this particular verse. He says, Na kaschit, no one, jatu, ever, kshanamapi, even for a moment, tishtati akarmakrit can remain or be doing nothing. This is a very beautiful phrase that Krishna uses that akarmakrit, tishtati akarmakrit, cannot remain doing nothing. Akarma is inaction of or not doing anything and krita means to do. So literally akarmakrit means to put it like doing non-doing, literally. Akarmakrit. So nobody can do akarmakrit or nobody can do Non doing, if that makes any sense. Because that's a very beautiful way he's putting it. Tishtati akarmakrit. Nobody can jatu ever chanamapi, even for a moment. Tishtati akarmakrit. Let us say, for argument's sake, that a person manages to stay absolutely still without doing any actions whatsoever. Wouldn't the heart be beating? Will the breathing not be happening? Will there not be other biochemical reactions happening in the body or some such activity happening, right? This is something which some would say. How can you say that you're not doing when so much is happening? And uh, as students of science and especially students of chemistry, we will know that each one of those reactions which happen in the body, if we have to replicate it in a laboratory, how laborious a process that is, we know what that is. And all of that is happening and millions of millions of such biochemical processes are happening in our body even for this simple act of us sitting still in a place. So how can we claim that we are not doing anything? It is just that when I wish to do something, let us say I want to take up an activity, I use these same processes which are already happening in the body to say lift my hand or say something through words or walk somewhere and go or do a particular activity which is a complex mixture of all of these activities that I just mentioned. So when I wish to sit still, my body is still active. It's just that my limbs are inactive. Just because I'm not using my hands, just because I'm not using my faculty of speech or even the faculty of sight, it does not mean that I'm not acting. The body is still acting. It's just that when I choose to use my, what we refer to as karmendriyas, right? These are all the limbs of action. That's why we use the word karmendriyas karma indriyas jnana indriyas or jnana indriyas are the organs of perception, the sense organs so these are referred to as karma when the body is already active, I am just not using my karma actively, it does not mean that I am not doing karma so the means for doing karma are the karma and in fact this word is going to come in the very next verse I think the karma are used for doing what the mind directs the mind sets itself upon some object or some activity or some achievement and it achieves it through the karmendriyas. Right? That is the whole process by which we go and do an activity. It achieves it through the karmendriyas, the limbs and the sensory organs and of course the jnanendriyas. So how does the mind choose what it wants to do? I am choosing to be sitting here and doing this particular work. If someone else is choosing to do something else, Yes, the limbs act, the senses cooperate with that, but what makes the mind choose what to do? And this is something we have been discussing in the second chapter too. Again, this shows how the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is, in many ways, it's almost like a zipped version of the rest of the Gita. You can see that we'll keep going back to that and that also shows why Arjuna is asking these questions because these were not elaborated upon in the second chapter, right? The mind may choose to do one thing over the other but what is it being propelled by? It is being propelled by raga and dvesha, likes and dislikes or based on what is the role or duty of that person in that particular situation. right? So the mind either decides to do an activity based on its own likes and dislikes or it chooses to act based on what is the duty of that moment. In fact, if you look at our own lives and how we choose to do things, we will see that we are constantly doing both of this. We are constantly using our likes and dislikes. At the same time, we are also looking at what is the duty that we are supposed to perform at that particular time. So not every action is necessarily defined by duty alone. Not every action is purely defined by Raga and Dvesha alone. It is easy to say that we negate our likes and dislikes and do our duty, but what has brought us to a particular situation and made this particular activity our duty? We are born in a certain family, we are born as someone's daughter, we are born as someone's son or we are in a situation where we have become the father of the house. So what has brought us to that particular situation and what makes us like something more than the other? What makes us dislike something more than the other? If you look at both of these, you will be led back to what are the attributes of the mind or what are the vasanas of the mind or in other words what are the gunas of the mind right what is the nature of the mind is what dictates likes and dislikes and through a very complex process of rebirth and reincarnation you are put in a situation where a certain duty becomes what you have to do so for both of this it is the nature of the mind which is responsible right let us say that uh, you know you have a family you earn for them that way you are performing your duty But what profession do you take up is based on your likes and dislikes. Someone wishes to join the army, someone wants to be an artist. Both are performing their duty but the likes and dislikes are also in operation. So what we choose to do in life, be it Raga and Dvesha or what is based on our duty, both of this are at the play at the same time and both of this are being dictated by the nature of the mind. And that's what Krishna explains in the second line of that particular verse, the fifth verse of the third chapter. He says, Karyate hi avashaha Forced to act helplessly. Avashaha means helpless or without having a say. is forced to act. Karyate karma. Who is being forced to act? Sarvaha. Everyone is in this state where they are being forced to act in a certain manner. And who forces one to act? Prakatir jaihi. Through their inherent nature, Gunahi through their gunas right so krishna explains that everyone is acting and everyone is acting helplessly because they are being dictated by their gunas and by their prakriti in fact krishna makes this very clear here this is also going to be another question that arjuna will ask that i'm being dictated but how do i overrule that because without overruling what is being dictated in the mind we will never be able to get somewhere right we have to go beyond that So that's a question that Arjuna is going to ask later. I don't know where exactly, fifth or sixth chapter, I think that question comes again. But Krishna makes it very clear here that nobody can escape action. Everyone has to act, not even for a moment you can escape action. And what dictates your action or what makes you act? It is the nature of the mind. So this also reiterates a point that we made a few minutes back. If one has to lead a life of a karma yogi, doing one's duty dispassionately, it could be quite possible that in the next birth or even later in the same life, one may feel that urge to renounce everything. And where does that urge come from? Because that vairagya has now become part of one's nature and that now dictates raga and dvesha. Raga and dvesha does not have to be looked at as a negative couplet all the time, right? You could even have raga for the right things, you could even have dvesha against the bad things, right? So when you say that the vairagya is now dictating your raga and dvesha, instead of going after worldly achievements, now the mind looks for higher peace. The mind looks for the truth. The mind looks for more meaning in life, right? Or it starts seeking silence and peace. In fact, if you look at it, even the worst person will have these desires deep in their heart. There's nothing like we overcome these desires or we don't have these desires. All of us certainly have this. In fact. you know, there are a lot of people who come to the ashram for the first time, a lot of people whom we get to meet. The first few days in the ashram, they're completely bowled over by the whole atmosphere and they say, oh, it's so peaceful here, it's so calm here. Is there any way we can get a job here and we can settle down here? Oh, it is so wonderful. I think it's because we all inherently have that craving for peace and a calm and you know, meaningful life. And when we have an opportunity and we come across that, instantly we kind of crave for that. But if you look at it, most of these people will, when they go back and they get back to their lives, they forget about it and they go back to their own rat race of the corporate world. Not to say that it is a wrong thing, it is just that, yes, this desire also is there, but there are other desires which tend to overrule this desire which is just propped up in their mind. But this is not to say that all of us who have stayed here in the ashram, like me, my brothers and sisters who have chosen to be in the ashram, You know, that one choice is enough and now we are done for, we are going to reach liberation. That is not the point that I'm trying to make. In fact, even if you choose to lead a silent life, you have to lead a silent life. Just by choosing to lead a silent life, I don't think it's not done. And in fact, the beauty is Krishna is going to just reiterate that very same point in the next Loka. He says, a choice alone means nothing. Because Narjuna is saying that all I have to do is make a choice either to fight or run away from here and become a sannyasi. A choice alone does not define anything, right? That's what Krishna is going to explain clearly. And Krishna is trying to make Arjuna see that point that it is not about choice, it is not about the external attributes. It's something deeper. And we will listen to the next verse, the sixth verse of the third chapter. It's again a wonderful verse where Krishna makes this very clear. And we will discuss about this why this verse in many ways is actually more relevant to us than in Arjuna in a certain sense. We'll first listen to the verse and
1: then we'll discuss about it. Karmen Driyani Sam Yamya Ya as temana sasmaran Indriarthanvi Mudhatma Uchyate.
0: He who, retaining the organs of action, sits thinking of the sense objects in mind, he of deluded understanding is called a hypocrite. Once again, it is very important to remember that this entire discourse was being delivered towards the fag end of the dwapara, And this particular statement is, as I said, so much more applicable to the present times than probably the times of Arjuna because Arjuna would have seen sages like Vyasa and Durvasa and all of these great sages who are true sannyasis and true sages in that sense. So when uh, Krishna is talking about a fake sannyasi, so to say, I don't think Arjuna would have been able to relate to that and all of us will be able to relate to that much better. And I remember uh, once when Swami students were singing a particular Telugu song in Swami's presence. That was a time when a lot of these old compositions that Swami had written and composed were being uh, resurrected by the students. It's not that nobody was singing them, but we as students would not probably sing them because most of these would be tongue twisters in Telugu. So there was a time when we were learning all of these songs and we were trying to present them in front of Swami and there was this one particular song which is very beautiful which goes Jagamula nedi which means you are the one who is enacting or who is staging this entire drama of this world. And in that there is this one particular line, which goes Dunga Sannyasulaku duramodu, which means for fake sannyasis or for those who pretend to be sannyasis, the line goes that you distance yourself. Right? This is Swami's own words. And uh, the same song when Swami sings in different occasions, he might change these words a little here and there. So when the students were singing this particular song this debate came up that you know it's okay for swami to say dunga Sanyasulu but we are young students can we use this word would it be taken as being very rude will swami be upset with it because sometimes swami would be very particular that you know swami can say it but we should be very careful of how we express so they thought that you know maybe this has to be toned down a little and i don't recall but they used a different word instead of dunga dunga means thief or someone who is a fraudster right so, Dunga Sanya that word Dunga was changed into something which gave the same meaning but a little more politically correct or you know, a little more less harsher word was used. And when this song was sung in front of Swami and literally Swami stopped the boys from singing and Swami said, Why did you change it? Sing it as Dunga Sanya right? Because it's the same message, it's the same message which Krishna gave, the particular verse that we just heard. This is what Krishna is saying it. This is not to throw any aspersions on anyone saying that some people are like that. No, that's not the whole idea. The emphasis is on the point that what you do, where you are, what you wear and what you eat are important but they alone do not decide what you are and hence that does not decide whether you are in the right direction. In fact, if you go back to the Srimad Bhagavatam, there is a very beautiful description of how the Kali Yuga will be and one of the descriptions about that is which keeps coming is this external nature being different from what is a person inside will be coming in different different forms you'll say just by wearing a sacred thread one person thinks that he's entitled to be called a brahmin just by speaking well somebody thinks that he's a scholar so a lot of these descriptions which reiterate this very point that it is not about the external there's something about what happens in your mind or in the attitude so Krishna says in this particular verse that we went through Ya karmendriāni samyamya One who has controlled the karmendriyas Astesmaran. smaran But sits and thinks of indriyarthan Objects of the senses Sarv, vimudhātma, He is deluded and mithyacharaha uchyate And is called a hypocrite I think that's a very very beautiful word Sanskrit word for the English term hypocrite Mithyacharah Mithya means is a word which we have come across many times Mithya means that which appears true but which is not true which means it gives you a different appearance but it is something else So Mithyacharah means one whose actions appear in a certain way but the reality is different Right? There is a beautiful word for Mithyacharah So he says such a person is called Mithya uchyate In the context of Arjuna who has been telling that he wants to go away to the forest and become a sannyasi? what is the guarantee that Arjuna will be sitting in Padmasan in the forest after giving up all of this and not be thinking of the unfairness that was met to him and his brothers by Duryodhana and his brothers? Maybe Arjuna will not be thinking of comforts and sense pleasures. But will he not be thinking of revenge? Will he not be thinking that I was being treated unfairly and my wife was treated badly. My mother was treated badly. What is the guarantee that sitting there he will be not thinking of these things? Arjuna and his brothers have lived for twelve years in the forest, and they've lived in very very poor circumstances. So in that sense, they've gained a lot of self control over their body and over their mind. They've lived in in a lot of sealing on desires, if you could put it that way. So it is not that they've not led a life like that, but they did not stop thinking about the battlefield, they did not stop thinking about revenge. So, it is not that just by choosing to go away, one can ensure that the mind does not think of such things. Right? Simply by taking sannyasa and leaving the battlefield in a moment of dispassion, Arjuna will not get moksha because one may appear to be a renunciant, but the mind may be doing something else. So, karmia or actionlessness is not merely sitting without doing anything. It is a mental state too. Isn't that why Arjuna asked about the nature of a sthita prajnaya, but Krishna only spoke about the sthita attitude? Right? That is what happened. Arjuna asked about the nature of a sthita prajnaya, but what Krishna spoke was the attitude because what is external is not as important as what is internal. So even to be able to sit and think of higher knowledge or meditate or contemplate on God, to a certain extent, raga and dvesha, or your likes and dislikes, have to be controlled. That's why we had gone through the beautiful analogy that Swami gives of a lamp in the center of the house, and the windows are open, and when the senses are stirred, the mind will be distracted, and after the whole sequence of dhyayate, vishyan, punsaha, sangaste, shupa etc., etc., and all of that happens, the senses are stirred because. Of Raga and Dvesha, right? Let us not conclude that Krishna is against sannyasa. Let us not conclude that uh, Krishna is against the sannyasis. I think even that would be a very, very premature conclusion to come to. Krishna is correcting this false notion that spirituality is merely the act of taking sannyasa. So Krishna is saying, Arjuna, it is good that you're asking about moksha and wanting to attain it, but Thinking that it can be pursued only by giving up all this is a misconception. Also remember that Krishna has taken the role of the Guru of Arjuna. So what Krishna is describing is also what is best for Arjuna as a person. Because that is the role a Guru plays. When the disciple surrenders to the Guru, the Guru does not give him general Gyan or general wisdom, which is like a syllabus in the school. The difference between a teacher in a school and a Guru is that the guru is able to see what is necessary for this particular individual in front of him and he grants that, right? So when you say that Krishna has taken up the role of being the guru of Arjuna, what he saying is also best for him. What is right for Arjuna in that sense? We'll go to the next verse which is the seventh verse and we'll probably
1: talk briefly about that, we don't have much time. Yastvindriyani Manasa Niyam Ya Arjuna Karmendriyai Karma Yogam Asaktasavishate.
0: But oh Arjuna, one who engages in Karma Yoga with the organs of action. Controlling the organs with the mind and becoming unattached, that one excels. In the previous verse Krishna spoke about a person who controls the karmendriyas and is lost in mind. Not only is this about sannyasa, it is also about getting the idea totally wrong as we just discussed. By just doing what the other person does just by imitating the external traits of the other person, you cannot claim to be in the same level. I saw a sannyasi wearing an awkward dress and I saw him sitting down with a benign smile on his face and looking very calm and peaceful. So, can I dress the same way? Can I sit in the same manner, imitate the same posture and the same expression? Do I become a sannyasi that way? You might become a sannyasi in the term of people calling you a sannyasi, but it will not take you any sooner to the goal. In fact, it may even distance you, as we saw in that song that Swami has written, Dungasanya Sulaku Dhuve. So, in this verse, Krishna is saying the karmendriyas have to be controlled. There's no doubt about that. But it is not completely not using them. He gives the right order or the approach to this whole idea. He says, Tu, whereas, Yaha, one who, Indriyani Manasa Niyamya, controls the senses and the mind or could even be told as controls the senses through the mind or the intellect. Right? This particular phrase can be interpreted in both those ways. Indriyani, Manasa, Niyamya controls the senses through the mind. Aarabhate takes to Karma Yoga Amasaktaha to be unattached and to have Karma Yoga. Karmendriyahi, through the Karmendriyas, all the organs of the action Sir Vishishyate, such a person is far superior. I'll repeat that portion again. So he says, Indriyani Manasa Niyamya, the one who has controlled the senses through the mind, Arabhate, takes to Karma Yoga Masaktaha, to Karma Yoga and is unattached, Karmendriyaihi, through the Karmendriyas or the organs of actions, Sir Vishishyate, Such a person is far superior. So he's saying that one has to take to karma yoga using the karmendriyas. But how do you operate these karmendriyas? It has to be operated through the mind, which has been controlled, where the mind and the senses have been controlled. With that kind of a mind frame, you use your karmendriyas or the limbs of your feet and your hands and all of that and perform karma yoga, right? So Krishna speaks about what is this. Control, when we use this word control, what it really means, a point that I think I've made many many times before on this show and even on other segments. Control is not non-usage. I think that is a point which has to be clarified. Control of the mind, control of the senses, control of the body is not non-usage of any of these. Control is right usage. So the karmendriyas have to be used. Even a sannyasi has to use the body and its limbs but the attitude towards action has to be changed. Karma remains, but when the attitude changes, it becomes karma yoga. And when that happens, the person, though engaged in actions, is essentially doing what a sannyasi does. A sannyasi gives up his family and home and considers the entire world as his family. In fact, some of the vows that a monk takes a sannyasa he takes is that he says that now the entire world is my home and all people around are my brothers and sisters right that is one of the approaches of sannyasa and that is precisely what happens in the case of a karma yogi too he only looks at all of these relations as people who define what he is supposed to do in other words he does not necessarily relate to each one of those people in his family as you know this is my wife and this is my brother he only looks at all of them as people who are helping him to define what he has to do, right? And what this karma yoga is, what is that attitude which makes karma into karma yoga, what one has to keep in mind, these are all points that Krishna is going to be explaining in this particular chapter where he talks about karma yoga. But one thing to keep in mind all through this is, karma yoga is not merely righteous action, right? Wherever the word karma is used, it means Good action because this is a question which always people come and ask so I should do action without looking at the benefits can I do wrong action without looking at the benefits? can I do something heinous and say that no I am doing it without any desire on the uh, results so it becomes karma yoga no the bottom line is that one has to do right actions one has to do actions which are defined by morality but good actions and moral actions alone do not become karma yoga. Those are two points to be kept in mind. Wherever the word karma is used, it goes without saying that karma is good karma, right karma. And if someone says that I am always doing the right actions, merely doing one's dharma or merely by doing what are the right things to do does not make it karma yoga too. Karma yoga is purely a different attitude altogether which Krishna has hinted in the second chapter but in the third chapter he is going to elaborate that more and more. So we'll be going into all of that as we go through this chapter. With this, I conclude this week's episode. I thank all of you for joining me week after week and for all the encouragement. If you have anything to share, if you have anything that you want clarified based on what was said, feel free to write to me. You can write to me directly or you can write to listener at radiosai.org. Now you can also send us your feedback through WhatsApp. So I'll join you all again next week. Till then, happy listening and Jay Sairam.